Well, tonight we get to find out what the law is for. We have looked for several weeks at what the law cannot do. And uh, we, as we looked into chapter 3 and really stretching back into chapter 2, we focused in on the fact that the law really did not keep us from sin. It did not make us righteous. We also looked at the fact that the law did not bring us the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't come by the law. We aren't made righteous by the law. And we also find that the promises did not come by means of the law. That the law predated the promises and that the deliverer was not a result of the law, but rather he was a result of grace by faith. Salvation through, by grace through faith. And so we find that um, the promises of God encompass really in the person um, described Jesus Christ, um, is not... Um, driven or based upon the foundation of keeping the law, but rather Christ became the law keeper on our behalf. That is, he completed, fulfilled the law and uh, so that we could receive salvation. And we looked at Abraham being 400-some years before the law, where the promises were given. And so therefore we're not looking to the law as the premise of how we come to God that we did not come to God based upon our righteousness as well. I'm here, I'm keeping the Sabbath, I'm keeping the food laws, I'm keeping the ceremonial laws, I'm keeping the, the, uh, all, the uh, whatever law, I mean, pick the category, the laws covered uh, overwhelmingly most of the uh, aspects of living for man. Uh, And it's not because I'm circumcised, therefore I have acceptance before God. But rather we find uh, that all of these good things from God's hand, all of these benefits uh, enjoyed really by Abraham and and all of the quote-unquote children of Abraham, which are the, the ones who believe are the children of Abraham, all were factored out not based upon their keeping of the law, um, certainly there was obedience there, but it was because they believed. And we look at Abraham as our prime example, which is really developed extensively, of course, in Romans. Paul similarly uh, develops the argument that he initiates here in Galatians, an earlier writing. But we find that Abraham becomes that, that example well before the law um, that God measured his faith and his willingness to obey, uh, and declaring him, impugning to him righteousness. But ultimately, it wasn't the obedience that was what declared him righteous. He certainly obeyed and left the land of Ur, but then he comes into a land, and we find one of the next texts there in Genesis after he leaves the land of Ur and gets into that He's afraid, and he shows really a lack of faith, and he wants to lie about his wife and because and, he's sure he's going to be killed for her because she's that beautiful. Remember, he was 75 when he left the land of Ur. So when he finally left his father's house, he's 75, his wife a few years younger, and he's concerned because she is such a looker that someone's going to kill him for her. 
and deceives the uh, ones there and, and uh, does not acknowledge her as his wife. And certainly we wouldn't identify that as something of faith. And yet he was still in the, in the act of obedience. Uh, and it really wasn't until a, God comes to him and says, you're going to have a son. It is through your son with Sarai, your wife, that uh, all the nations will be blessed. And at that event, uh, it is there in Genesis that we have him declared righteous. And we actually find no act of obedience there. It was in the midst of a promise. God gives a promise. Um, it is going to be through the child that Sarah is going to be give birth to um, that you'll be the ministering to the nations by means of that nation coming out of that child. And through the seed that would come through that one uh, that was a type or a picture of the one, Jesus Christ, to come, all the nations would be blessed. And we saw the, the powerful promise of God given to Abraham, not foundationally upon his obedience. The obedience was the bookends of it. There was obedience over here. Uh, then, of course, later on, that one son was taken up the mountain and uh, prepared for sacrifice. And God says, now I see that your faith is full and mature. And, but the faith was declaring him righteous years earlier. Obviously, when before even Isaac's birth. And so at the promise of God, it says that Abraham believed God at that point. His wife didn't believe him, right? She laughed. Right, I'm going to have a child. It says Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness at that point. And so we saw the obedience of leading the land of Ur. We see obedience, some obedience, but we find intermixed with it acts of, of fear and, and that seem to demonstrate a lack of faith. Uh, we find then at the promise of God, the declaration of a seed, um, that one named Isaac, who would then uh, foreshadow the one named Jesus, uh, that he believed. And he trusted in God to provide a means, to provide this blessing. And it was that belief that made or moved God or made that was a determining factor of God declaring him righteous, making him righteous, not on his own actions, but on his simply accepting the promise of God as real, sure, and reliable. And therefore, I will live in accordance with that. Of course, it was matured over the time, uh, and we see it uh, tested time and a, a few times. We're going to bring that out probably. You're, if you haven't already started looking at that in Hebrews, um, you'll certainly see that. Uh, the necessity of that tested faith. And even though he was declared righteous because he believed the promises of God at the promise of a child, it wasn't uh, fully mature, fully formed, fully uh, uh, signified until that act of obedience of being willing to sacrifice his son uh, if that's what God wanted. Um, if that was what was required. And so we come from that perspective of the law, that the law was not the means to the promise. It was not the means uh, of the Spirit. It was not uh, that which brought righteousness, but rather it uh, 
um, came much later than all of those. And so our question really as we come in is now, well, what is the reason we have the law? And we could have a very simple answer, but Paul is going to um, couch the answer in the person of Jesus Christ and in the facet of our salvation, which is our faith. And so that part that, that God provides and the part that we um, provide, if you will, uh, in this equation called salvation, where does the law fit in? And Paul is going to take the time to really uh, bring these two ideas together. Before we look at our text here in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 19, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word, and we pray that as we look into you might uh, give us understanding of it and uh, its significance. And we do thank you for your word, and it's precious to us, and the valuable time we can spend in it, um, no greater endeavor than to know you better and to serve you more. And we pray you might uh, move in our midst to that end, to your glory, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. So, direct question, what purpose then the law? Uh, why? And Paul starts off, so why the law? Why would God give us the law if it didn't bring the Holy Spirit, didn't bring righteousness, didn't bring the promises of God? Um, what, what's it there for? Uh, why all that work of going to Sinai, getting the law and all the requirements of it? Why all of this? in the economy of God, and the work of God, plan of God. Why? And it goes back somewhat to our message this morning with regard to uh, our bent toward denying our own sinfulness. And so let's read verse 19 through uh, the end of the chapter. We'll go ahead, um, although we really aren't going to get any farther than verse 25. It says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteous would have been by the law. But the scriptures could find all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. <clears throat> but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. As, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we could go on and talk more about the sonship of all who trust in Christ. So we come to the direct question, and he's going to give a follow-up question, that is, uh, are these in opposition to each other? Is the law then working against the promises of God because it, it uh, didn't bring forth the promises of God, and, it pre- and, and the promises preceded the law, so what was its necessity? And Paul anticipates these two questions, and he wants to address them. We find out immediately that the law had 
more than just one purpose. It's really not a singular idea here, um, but rather it's multiple purposes wrapped up in this image that we see in the end of it, and that is a tutor. Uh, someone that's there to discipline us, to instruct us, uh, to, to bring us to maturity, if you will, uh, to direct our attentions. And so what was the law teaching us? What was it tutoring us in? Uh, and uh, we find that uh, introduced really in the, the association with that relationship in verses 24 and 25, of course, um, that it is... Uh, that one who uh, was not a family member, whose purpose was to make sure that the children in the house uh, all got the instruction they needed to be able to be a mature and, and a benefit to the house, to, to be able to move and work and live. And so they were uh, generally a slave uh, in most households, but not always necessarily, but it's certainly a servant, slave, that would uh, make sure that the children were disciplined in their studies. And so it's not the study themselves. It is an instructor to discipline us in our studies. And this is a frustration that every student has, isn't it? Um, Every teacher probably has heard students say this. Why do I need to learn this? Right? Why is this important? How will I ever use this in my life? Uh, and there are a few, more than one class in my history that I wonder why, how, why did I ever have to go to that class? Every college student, every high schooler, every middle schooler, right down the line, why will I ever use this in my life? What is the point? Why do I have to learn this? I want to go out and do this with my life. Why do I need to learn this information that seems to be disassociated from the goal and aspiration of my life. And so I want to be a mechanic. Why do I have to sit here and study literature? What's the point? It has no correlation with what I'm going to be or want to be later on. And we might look at this with somewhat of the same attitude. What is the correlation between learning and understanding the law and what I want to be, which is a child of God. I want to be a person that is pleasing to God and living within the promises of God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, walking in his ways and being declared righteous. And and that's what I want to be. Why the law? Why the application of it? Why the giving of it? Uh, Why do I have to learn this stuff? And within the realm of these few verses, we really want to touch base with the concept of a tutor who has uh, multiple purposes in their relationship within, or not one purpose, well there's one purpose to guide us to the point that we want to be, but there are multiple facets, sides, there are multiple sides to this relationship of a tutor. So we have this tutor, this one who has a responsibility uh, even though he's not a part of the family, if you will, he's not of faith, but he is there to get us to a point of maturely and mentally, um, uh, to some degree, with the, within our affections, uh, certainly within our spiritual interests, to bring us within the family of God to maturity. 
and indeed so that we are a benefit and uh, truly behaving as children within that home. And so that was the purpose of the law. And we're going to see several ideas within the fulfillment of that purpose. Uh, One of the things a tutor was responsible for was to make sure that that child learned the disciplines of life. Uh, That is that uh, they were there to keep them from frittering away their hours and minutes and days, that uh, there was benefit to engaging the mind during these times of youth, uh, and to keep them sharp, to and there's a there's a certain benefit, and that's why we understood historically in the educational community that there is a great benefit to the the term is liberal, the liberal arts of education that we have this breadth um, because there's value in that breadth, not only in whether or not you're ever going to use it down the road in life but the effect it has upon your character and upon your mind and your attitudes and your perspectives on life. That while I may not be dependent upon what the themes of a certain novel are or piece of literature, um, the work of doing the research and of doing the investigation and of critical thinking skills that are developed there will eventually apply to these other things. And what, how Paul communicates this is the idea of a guardianship, that it is there to guard us. And he refers to it um, that it is, uh, and I'm kind of working a little bit backwards, um, that uh, verse 23, that before, we, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law um, toward an end. In other words, the purpose of the, of the law wasn't just to guard us, it was guard us to something and really to someone. And so just as a tutor was there to give you this breadth so that you could sharpen your skills, not just in one area that piqued your interest, but that you had access to all of these areas and begin to recognize that the quality of life is wide as well as deep, and and we don't want to have this narrowness. And so we have the law uh, touching all these various areas of life. And so all the way from, um, you know, what, what is the value of circumcision? I mean, you know, we could sit there and try to medically diagnose and say, well, there's certain value to it. Um, but ultimately, people live for thousands of years without it, and many billions of people on the, over the history of the earth have lived without it. Uh, so why that? All the way from that into your family, eating habits into your worship habits, social justice facets. And so the law is there working in many areas of life so we can begin to have an understanding of the necessity to be guarded from sin, of what it is, certainly in the definition of sin, but also to sharpen ourselves to identify right and wrong. It is sharpening the conscience of man and tying onto it just as our tutors sharpen the minds of the student, and that is their goal, is to sharpen those minds so that whatever field they get into down the road, they have the mental and, and skills and the breadth of basic knowledge to apply those um, and into life. That there is 
that even if you're a mechanic, that's the example we used earlier, there's still a quality of life to having some knowledge of the fine arts, of having some knowledge of how, how of being able to uh, play an instrument, of uh, understanding uh, sportsmanship and all that's involved in, in that. And so there's, there's value across all these fields and even being able to balance your checkbook and to have relationships within your family. All those things are, are valued by the tutor, and yet he's not actually teaching necessarily something that we will become. He is, he is giving us that. So the, the law forms a guard on our life, and it touches all this width of our life, and we suddenly realize that there is not just one side to what's righteous, but righteousness touches us on every side. And so there are facets of our physical being that uh, are right and wrong. There are facets of our, of our worship that are right and wrong. There are facets of, of relationships and social uh, engagement that, are, that is right and wrong. There's familial right and wrong. There's, there's no place in our life that, that there is not this war of right and wrong. There, it, there just isn't. There is no neutral ground. There is no gray territory. Uh, look at the law. See how many different parts of your life it touches. It touches your marriage. It touches having children. Your, uh, there's just, it's encompassing. You're surrounded by it. There isn't one category that we can just say, well, this is morally neutral. But we have now been tutored in the fact that Righteousness, right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness is expansive. It's all around us, and it's there to guard us from thinking that there is one direction we can go and disregard what is right and wrong. We can just do it. And perhaps the one area that we talked about this morning is in the area of our affections. I like it. It feels good. So therefore, you can have no moral judgment over it, because if it feels good, it must be either morally neutral or how can it be wrong? And are we hearing that argument today? Isn't that essentially what the, the homosexual community is trying to tell us? How can love ever be wrong? And by love, they, they, they mean their affections. How they feel about this person and this, these acts. Um, that's what they're talking about. And how can that ever be? How can you ever condemn love? Well, I condemn love all the time. Love of self, the Bible condemns it. Love of money, the Bible condemns it. Right? So, um, you can love the wrong thing, and the Bible communicates that, and it guards us, and it sharpens our, our ability to identify truth from error, to identify righteousness from unrighteousness, for what's holy to what is wicked. And the law enables us to do that. And it's that tutor. And while I may never be interested in pursuing this line of, of life or of sin or of activity, um, I still can be sensitive. I don't have to live that to know that's wrong. There's a right and wrong over there. Whether I'm married or not married, I can know from that there's right and wrong within that. There's faithfulness and unfaithfulness. I, I, I'm taught that. And it sharpens our skills. But it hasn't saved me. But it has uh, exposed me to the fact that 
in, in the realm of what is right and wrong, there is no part of my living from my food that I eat to um, my holiday patterns to uh, my relationship that isn't morally uh, right and wrong. Moral issues are not just one category of life. They encompass all of life. So why did we need food laws? Why did we need sacrificial laws? Why did we need uh, laws to deal with loaning money? And why did we need laws dealing with what happens if your axe handle flies off or your axe flies off its handle? Uh, Why do we need all those laws? To communicate to us, to teach us, and to guard us from the idea that there is any part uh, of life that isn't touched by the law. Why? Why is that necessary? And this goes back to the first argument. That is to bring us to Christ. That we need to be instructed of our transgressions. See, once we have been sharpened by the law and we say, well, there's right. That's right. The law says that is right. All right, so there's right. You um, honor your father and mother. Let's just pick on that one and keep the kids engaged here tonight. So honor your father and mother. That's what the Bible says is right. Very positive statement. Um, I didn't want to pick the negative. Don't kill, don't, not don't kill. Don't murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie. I want to pick a positive. So here we go. Honor your father and your mother. That is right. So here... We have something in your relationship with someone in your life that is going to persist until uh, they're dead. And even sometimes in death, you need to honor them as well. Uh, And so honor your mother and your father, that your days may be long upon the earth. Uh, And so that is right. And so now, as a child, I can look at it and say, well, what's honor? Well, honor involves obedience. We find that out, and it's there in the law. And the law says that if you have a child dishonoring their parents... What do you do to them? Well, in the law, you stone them to death. Wow. I guess it's important. Yes. If you have a child that refuses to submit themselves to their parent, the parent has the authority to bring them before the community and to have them stoned to death for it. And uh, when it becomes to that point. And so we look at that law and now we know right from wrong and we recognize that this is not something that is just up to me, uh, what I want to call honoring my parents uh, or dishonoring them, uh, obeying or disobeying. It's not a whimsical thing. There is a black and white line. And now that I've violated it, now I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've transgressed it. I have broken the law. Well, why is that necessary? Well, because then we are ready to come to the mediation table. And this Paul wants to draw out. Once you recognize your transgressions, as we talked about this morning, now you're ready to come to the table. Okay? Have you ever tried to mediate between... Well, two parties, and there's only one party present. <laughs> right? It's hard to do. Only one person shows up, or only one person is engaged. 
Um, and so here we are. We're going to uh, fix this. And I have people come to me. Um, and, I, oh, my marriage is in trouble. And I was like, okay, well, let's have you and your wife come on over. And, oh, no, my wife won't come. So what do you want me to do? We can't mediate that relationship with just you. I can't just counsel you without the other party. How can we bring these parties together when there's only you here? And the wife or the husband doesn't come. And so we, we come to a table, and when one is, is not there, how do we mediate? Well, in the relationship between us and God, we find that there was a mediator, and the law brings us to the table. How does it do that? teaches us right from wrong. And now we are transgressors. Oh, I'm the one in the wrong. I need to come to God for mediation. And the law, it says here, um, was given to mediate something. It was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Uh, and so he's there to bring us to the table. And we now have this one trying to bring us to God. And if one party says, I don't have a problem. I, I don't think I have a broken relationship. I, I like it the way it is. <laughs> uh, one, I have one instance where it was just devastating and um, went and talked to the wife and and uh, the husband was just devastated. And she says, I'm fine with everything the way it is like okay can't mediate this because in her mind everything was peachy why should we change anything i like the way it is i like my life the way it is well at that point mediation is pointless it's it's it cannot be done and with the law through that mediator brings us to God. It brings us to recognize I am broken. I have transgressed. I have violated the, the, the what is right. And now I'm in deep trouble. I am deserving of punishment. And now we come to the one, Jesus Christ, who becomes the mediator. Because the law can't resolve it, but it can initiate it. It brings us to the table. And so it doesn't make us right. It cannot undo our sin, but it brings us into mediation. It brings us there. So that now I am drawn here because right and wrong, and I have what we talked about this morning, guilt. Because the law has pointed out and put that spotlight on sin, this area that I've kind of said, no, that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong. I have this little pet, and, uh, and it exposes it. And that guilt, like we said this morning, isn't bad. It's pain. It, I, I agree. It's pain. It hurts. We don't like it. But I'm so thankful for it. Without pain, I wouldn't know that I'm doing something bad for myself, correct? Without the law, we don't know we're doing wrong. We're not going to look to think that there's anything wrong with our relationship with God. What's the big deal? I like it the way it is. But when the law comes in and instructs us, and then we realize, boy, I am far from where I need to be, and I'm deserving of punishment, 
in not just one area of life, but every area of life. The whole breadths are all around me. I am engrossed in sin. And, and Paul, in his own testimony, communicates this of him understanding himself as the worst of sinners. Well, how does Paul look at himself, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, I'm the worst of sinners? Because he looked at that law and says, I'm guilty, 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 guilty. I'm the worst. And what is even worse than I'm guilty is that I claim to be innocent. I claimed for all those years of my life to be innocent. I was the righteous one because I kept the law. I was the one saying, I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. I'm fine. I'm righteous. I didn't defile myself. I'm not defiled. I'm a keeper. I'm circumcised. I'm going to the Sabbath. I've got all this. But he said, ultimately, if I was honest, the law keeps exposing, keeps exposing, keeps exposing sin. So that now I'm ready to come and look for mediation. So law isn't uh, that which is going to resolve the issue, but it is going to bring us to the place to Christ where we can now find resolution. And that's how we should be using the law. Is the law is there to instruct. And so when we take the law out of our schools, we take the laws of God out of the psyche of the community out of the out of the vernacular of our society where we don't talk about right and wrong anymore we have done perhaps the greatest disservice to the process of salvation that could be done because the process never even gets a start it never gets initiated it is like taking all of your children and letting their minds be filled with mush by entertainment that directs them into nothingness. Oh, wait, never mind. That's going on. It's exactly what we're doing, isn't it? And now we have dull minds who can't distinguish, and we have dull morals. Why do we have dull morals? Because we've extracted the law. Just like we've extracted uh, the capacity to critically, of critical thinking and, and wide instruction, and uh, yes, there is wonderful value to all of your children be musically trained. I don't care. They're not going to all become concert pianists. They don't need to, but they need the value of it because it's a discipline that affects the others. And our society needs the value of being morally disciplined into this so that they are now have their consciences sharpened. And Paul, of course, in Romans talks about what the world wants. The world wants your consciences dulled. How do we dull the conscience? Let's not talk about right and wrong. How do you feel? And I go into meetings with the state of New Mexico, um, whether as a foster parent, as a pastor of uh, someone in, in my church, and I tr- start using words like, are we going to do what's right? And they go, ah, you can't say that! And I'm like, why? Oh, because those things are, you know, too subjective. I'm like, those are the least subjective things in the world, is right and wrong. But we have soiled it so badly, we have tried to rub it out, and, and like a really bad eraser, we have just made a mess out of it. 
because you can't do away with right and wrong because it's established. It, it's truth. But you can deny it, and that's what we're into. And so we're in a conversation where the law is trying to be extracted. So why is the world so dead set against the Ten Commandments coming down off the wall and out of our national conversation? Why aren't we willing to say that's wrong? Well, because this is the ploy of the evil one to keep us from coming to Christ. And so we use the law, we engage it, to sharpen the conscience. Otherwise, the conscience becomes seared, and now they're hopeless. There's no hope for a seared conscience of a society. If everything is right and nothing is wrong, where does it end? I, I laugh derisively. I don't laugh because it's funny. I laugh because it's, it's horrific. Um, that we are so concerned with child pornography. Why? Why is that wrong? How can love be wrong? They love children. I mean, every argument a homosexual can use to defend homosexuality as neither right nor wrong, it's just a choice, um, is the exact argument that every pedophile can use. I was born that way, and it makes me feel good, and how can love be wrong? Every single argument. And yet we'll mark pedophiles for life, and we're all up in arms, and yet, why is that wrong and this right all of a sudden? We have no authority. If we take the authority that made homosexuality okay and we are consistent in its application, then pedophilia is okay. It has to be. Who are we to judge? And we have come down to the last, very last bastions of right and wrong and, and, and we think we're... we're, we're doing society a favor because we still have this one area that's that oh you that's taboo taboo um, but we've already <laughs> broken every taboo to that point and the same arguments that breaks these breaks those why because way back we as a society and every society that's done this has been destroyed has succumbed to itself, to its own immorality. And we find that, rightly, the founders of this nation realize we must have be a place of right and wrong. We must be a place of truth um, that is authoritative. And otherwise, we can't control anyone. There is a control factor, that talk about the guard here, that is benefited. So in our conversation, um, we need to talk about right and wrong. How does that borne out? Well, how do you refer to a child in the womb? In your conversations. I remember when David and Rita lost their child and um, no medical provider there would call that baby 
a baby. Tissue, fetus. And David kept saying, baby, baby, baby. Why? We're trying to communicate something that we want to keep in a moral absolutism. We want to keep over here that there's sharpness between right and wrong. There's black, there's white, and we keep wanting to make all these areas gray, and God's Word doesn't have any room for it. And so we need to engage our society with that's a lie. That's a lie. Do you remember President Obama's speech that some Republican out there said, that's a lie! How much? Do you remember that? In one of his speeches, the guy just couldn't contain himself, and he said, that's a lie! And Obama's looked at him, and the guy had to apologize. His, I mean, the talk about getting into trouble, yell out, that's a lie, to a president's speech as a member of Congress on national television. The guy was in hot water up to his eyes like that. But was it the truth? Not what Obama says, but the accusation? Yes! Everyone in the room knew it was truly a lie. But you're not allowed to call a liar, a lie, a lie. Oh, I think you misstated it. Don't you love when they say, I think it was a misstatement. No, it's a lie. But we can't have those conversations anymore. So the, we need to engage the law, and we need to confront it with our people around us. And it is the... If we don't do that, we're in a hopeless situation because they're not going to come to the table for mediation that we're going to have with Christ. We can't bring them to Christ if they don't see a need. And so the law is valuable, not because it can save us, not because it makes us more righteous, um, but because it brings us to Christ so that then we can come to Christ and say, I need the promises of God because I'm a lawbreaker, I'm a transgressor, now I need someone to take the penalty for me. Oh, here we have such an individual, Jesus Christ, who kept the law, and he can now make you righteous by forgiving you of your sin, cleansing you of it, and filling you with a righteousness that is not your own but his. And now you can meet the standard of the law without having actually kept the law yourself because you're doing it not based upon your activity, but the activity of Christ, and that is faith. You believe that God is willing to credit you with righteousness because you believe his promise. His promise is, if you'll trust in my son, his work, I'll count you as righteous. The law brings us to the table. It just draws us to the table. And we've been told by a generation almost of preachers, um, false preachers, I contend, that that's not how you get people to the table of the gospel. You give them to the table of the gospel by talking about how God is love and with the carrot of eternal life. It's not. I'm pretty sure that's not how Paul and Silas got the Philippian jailer to run in, fall on his knees and say, how... What must I do to be saved? Um, is a recognition that those were righteous and he wasn't. So we find this use of the law, and so we do not 
demean the law. We do not speak evil of the law. Uh, We recognize that we have a life distinct from the law and that the law did not give us life, did not make us righteous, but we see the great value that is in it and that uh, we are all sinners, that we all need to come to the table of the mediation of the gospel uh, so that we can, by the mediator, capital M, Jesus Christ, receive eternal life. And this, then, is the value of the law. But we're going to pick up on this idea of tutor next week as sons and heirs that uh, we're still maturing into uh, being full adults in the family of God through the, sometimes through the uh, appropriate use of the law, not dependence on it, um, but using it to guide us into righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and thank you again for the work that you've done to bring us to this table. That we were far away and disinterested and unwilling to even acknowledge that we had a problem. We thank you for law that said this was error, this was sin, and this is righteousness, and we failed in our own to keep it, and thus we saw our need. And then, Lord, we thank you for your love for us that provided a means to meet that need. But we also thank you for your love for us to expose our sin and remind us of it over and over and over again, the breadth of it, of our failure to be holy as you are holy and our need for one to be holy on our behalf. And so, Lord, we thank you for the law in its context and its great value. And we thank you that we are not kept in it, but delivered by the working of Christ, and we rejoice in that most of all. Lord, we pray that we might continue to confront those around us who are not in Christ, to bring, that we might bring them to you and be willing to speak righteousness in a perverse world, to speak in black and white terms in a world that wants to pretend that neither exists. And Lord, give us the wisdom to do so and the courage to face the consequences of a society that doesn't want to hear it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.